hey, just jumping in here quickly because I'm really excited to share that I've just launched something brand new. It's called the Smell Gym. This is the place to exercise your sense of smell. I've got online classes for everyone, no matter your ability to smell or not to smell. As you know by now, I'm really passionate about our sense of smell, and I want everyone to have the healthiest, most robust ability to smell possible. I invite you to go to my website, smellgym.com, and check out what might be the best fit for you. Hello, welcome to An Aromatic Life. So today we're going to explore the digital realm of olfaction, specifically what's happening in the artificial intelligence space to support fragrance development. You might have noticed since the start of the year, AI has really come into the mainstream with all the hype around chat GPT and such. But as you'll learn from my guest, it's really been around for quite some time in certain circles. Today, I want to bring it into focus because there's some amazing work being done to help perfumers heighten their creativity even more by offering them an exponential number of olfactory possibilities, which means potentially really exciting new and innovative scents for all of us to enjoy and experience. In fact, my guest's new startup could not only inspire new perfumes, but also help scientists better understand olfaction as a whole which is awesome, right? Because you know how far behind we are versus our understanding of sight and sound. We actually get into that a bit. But also the technology can potentially support multiple different verticals beyond perfumery, like for instance, helping to combat mosquito-borne diseases, which is work they've already explored and have seen great potential for. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about my guest today. Alex Wilchko is the CEO of Osmo and an entrepreneur in residence at Google Ventures. He joined the life sciences team in 2022, where he's focused on advancing the field of digital olfaction. He's also the co-host of the Theory and Practice podcast alongside Google Venture partner Anthony Philippakis. And the podcast features conversations at the cutting edge of biology and computer science. Previously, Alex was a staff research scientist at Google Research, where he worked at the intersection of machine learning and biology since 2017. Alex is a repeat entrepreneur who has spent much of his career exploring new frontiers in artificial intelligence. Before Google, Alex co-founded Syllable Life Sciences, which was acquired by Numora. That used AI and computer vision to decipher body language to accelerate preclinical development and build better treatments for disease. Alex was also the co-founder of WetLab, which was acquired by Twitter and spent the earlier years of his career as a software developer. Alex holds a PhD in neuroscience from Harvard University, where he studied olfactory neuroscience and developed next-generation high-throughput behavioral phenotyping technologies, now used in dozens of top-tier labs and pharma companies. He received his Bachelor of Science degree in Neuroscience from the University of Michigan. As impressive as that resume is, what I think I love the most about Alex is that just like me, he's totally obsessed with smell, and it certainly comes across in this conversation. So let's get started. Enjoy my conversation with Alex Wilchko. 
This is An Aromatic Life, the podcast that aims to shed light on our beautiful sense of smell and increase its profile in a culture dominated by sight and sound. My name is Frau Gagalia. I'm a certified aromatherapist and smell coach who spent over 20 years in and around the fragrance industry. What I know for sure after all these years is that our sense of smell is powerful, yet is so underappreciated. There's so much we can do to harness our sense of smell to be well. So join me as I explore this mesmerizing sense from all different angles and learn what it can do for you. Enjoy the show. So I want to welcome you to An Aromatic Life. Alex, thanks so much for being here. It's great to have you. It's my it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm excited to talk to you today because you're doing something in the fragrance world that's the future. But in, in fact, the future is here and now, right? <laughs> it's already arrived. There's this phrase from, uh, I think it's from Alan Kay, which is, uh, um, the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. And then uh, the second quote from him is, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And so we're very much in the present, but um, we are coming with a unique perspective on how we can, uh, on how we can help make better fragrance ingredients. And uh, we think um, unlock uh, new kinds of creativity in the industry. Yeah, I feel like already, you know, it's only early in 2023, but I feel like AI is already having a moment. I feel like this this year really came in with a bang with Chat GPT and all the other stuff. It just feels like this is the moment right now. Yeah, it's the cresting wave. And, you know, it's uh, I, I worked at Google for uh, about six years and Twitter for two years before that. And I'll be honest, the kinds of things that are getting into people's hands have, have been actually around, but in, in private for quite some time. And what people have figured out is now how to actually safely start to share it with lots of people. So that, no doubt there's a breakthrough that's happening, but it's just interesting how you know, it's not really a zero or one moment, like the smartest people I've ever met have been working on this stuff for, you know, five, 10 years, in some yeah. cases, uh, depending on how you count it. So it is just phenomenal to see the the kinds of innovations that are being put out there in the world, and also just how varied those innovations are, right? There's many, many different kinds of um, approaches to artificial intelligence, and uh, to machine learning, and just to automating cognition, automating thought, yeah, uh, we're really used to automating work, mechanical, physical work, right? But that was a weird thing 200 years ago. It was like, like there were there was all kinds of trouble with us wrapping our heads around the idea that muscles aren't the things that do all the moving. And now what we're starting to see is that our minds aren't the ones that are doing all of the thinking. And I drive a car. I'm not upset that I don't use my legs to to paddle like you know Fred Flintstone. Right. right. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, I also use Excel, right? And it does arithmetic for me. And it's just the areas in which we can actually take advantage of this kind of cognitive automation are, are, are expanding dramatically. And I think it's very exciting. And I think it's going to leave us more time to be creative, frankly. Before we get into all things digital and non-human, I wanted to ask you a quick question because I ask all my guests when they join is, I want to ask you about your sense of smell, your actual nose, what you know that you as a human use. We're Tell going to me. measure it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is an audio uh, audio event, but uh, <laughs> but we can make it slightly visual or, or visceral for folks. No, I just um, wanted to understand what the sense of smell means to you personally. It's been it's been the most. How do I say this? I think that everybody has 
windows that let the outside into them, right? That let the world enter into what would ordinarily be a darkened interior of our minds and our thoughts. And some people's windows are bigger than others in different ways. So for instance, I'm not a very visual person. I can't see anything when I close my eyes. I don't dream in pictures, but the window for smell is very wide open for me. And that's not to say that I'm a master perfumer. It's not to say that I can do what trained professionals can do, but it's it's just so visceral and so powerful uh, for me. And it forms you know my main my main positive and negative memories in my life. Mm. And so it's been very, very powerful for me since I was, I was young. Yeah. I was going to ask you, do you, have you always been connected to your sense of smell? I mean, is this something that you came into through the work that you're doing now? Always. Uh, I've been smell obsessed since I was, since really? I can remember. Um, okay. I, there's two constants in my life. One is I've been a big computer nerd since I okay. <laughs> could, before I could speak, I was playing with the computer and then I've been scent obsessed. And uh, I started collecting perfumes when I was in high school. And, uh, uh-huh. you know, being growing up in a very small Texas town and being a computer nerd and collecting perfumes did not <laughs> really make me the most popular person uh, in high school. But it, once you've got an obsession, you can't shake it and you can't really deny it. And so that's been the thread that's followed me throughout my whole life is computers and, and scent. And Osmo, this this company that I have the great fortune to work at is about fusing those two things as tightly as possible and seeing what it can do for, for our understanding of scent and for, um, for the kinds of scents we can deliver to consumers. Well, let's talk about Osmo. Let's get right into it. Um, can you tell everybody just broadly speaking what Osmo is before we get into all the things it can do already? Yeah, it's, uh, Osmo is a company in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, we've got folks that work with us from all over the country, but our labs and our center of mass is here in the, in the Boston area. Mm-hmm. And we're a uh, digital olfaction company. And our mission is to digitize smell and to understand smell. And our focus today is what we think we know how to do quite well, which is design new fragrance ingredients that smell wonderful, smell potent, are affordable, are safe for people and for the environment. So they don't hurt your skin. They don't hurt uh, lakes and rivers and, and soil. Um and develop these molecules and get them to as many people and products as, as we can and uh, increase the number of smiles on people's faces. Given that though, so that's where what you want to do, but there's obviously a point where you go, oh, this is actually something that we could consider. Like where did going back a little bit, how did you even come up with the concept or think, oh, there's an opportunity here. There's a need here. Um, yeah. Great where did question. that come from? So I've been studying smell in one form or the other for 15 years. So um, my training is in neuroscience, and then I subspecialized in olfactory neuroscience. And I studied under um, Professor Bob Data at Harvard Medical School, and he himself studied under Richard Axel, who got the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the receptors. And my other mentor was a fellow named Ryan Adams, who studied under Jeff Hinton, who invented deep learning. And at that point, my course was set, which is I'm definitely going to be working at this intersection for the rest of my life, which is artificial intelligence and olfaction. And I've been really fascinated with this idea of why things smell the way that they do. And there's not any good answers out there, right? I've actually taken calipers to measure the width of the number of pages in the neuroscience textbook called Principles of Neural Science. And it's a monster book. It's like four inches thick. (laughs) <laughs> it's the classic paperweight for anybody who studies neuroscience. <laughs> and vision is like a centimeter 
it's just like there's so many pages dedicated to vision and then hearing is like three quarters of a centimeter and there's like 20 pages for smell almost nothing yeah and a lot of it's out of date and wrong right um and none of it has to do with how the outside world works of why things smell the way that they do it's just a very kind of dry description of the anatomy and the physiology and the development the basics, yeah. Um, yeah. exactly and not you know there's no notion that like there's a sun that produces light that gets into our eyes. We know that for vision, but for smell, there's living things that produce molecules that leave their bodies that enter our nose, enter our nose, even touch our brain because that's what's happening in your inside of your nose, and then you perceive them directly. It's the most connected you can possibly be with another living thing, and yet it's just a fraction of the attention on this sense. And it's the most emotional. It's the most powerful. It's just there's so many ways in which it's different and special. And it's always been frustrating to me that we haven't we haven't lavished this sense with the attention that it deserves. Yeah. And um, hallelujah. Studied, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. why I have this We're podcast. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Let's let's just get that message out to as many people as possible for sure. Exactly. And so I studied it academically, and I I I went as far as I felt I wanted to go. I should say. Um, and then I moved into industry and I, I got into artificial intelligence. I started a few companies um, and then I ended up uh, selling one of those to Twitter where I worked at Twitter uh, for two years. Um, and I think everything that I've done there has been washed away by uh, Mr. Musk, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I, I cut my teeth on industrial scale machine learning there. And then I moved to Google Brain, which is a, a sub team in Google Research. It's kind of a if you're familiar with Bell Labs or yeah. Xerox Park, yeah. that's Alphabet's equivalent for AI type research. And so I did a, a few things to start off, but as a research scientist in that group, I had very large leeway and said, well, we're studying sound, we're studying vision for computers. Let's try to see if we can study digital olfaction. So I, I founded and led the digital olfaction group at Google Brain and, and led that uh, for about five years. And we made some breakthroughs on what seems to be a simple problem, but it's actually devilishly complex, which is if you can draw the structure of a molecule, can you predict what it smells like? And it turns out, for the most part, nobody can. Um, for certain subsets, certain kinds of chemistry, certain kinds of smells, there's rules that are pretty good, but there's nothing general. There's no way to guide your way through the enormous space of possible molecules and find things that smell like sandalwood or like cinnamon or like lily of the valley, much less find things that smell at all. And we built that system and we tested it in a double blind human trial and our predictions were superhuman, meaning the panel averages, if you ask a group of people what something smells like and you average it, that's the best you can do. Uh, but any one person has some distance from how the panel thinks. And our software program is closer to the panel average than any one average person is. Meaning if you wanted to grow your panel by one person, you'd actually prefer to ask a piece of software that we built what something smells like with just the digital representation of a molecule as opposed to a real person with a real molecule. What that means is we can digitally sniff millions of molecules. And then we can find the ones that we think, we're not always right, but the ones that we think and are, are, are confident smell interesting and then we can have them made uh, or we can make them ourselves and then we can smell them and see if we're right and uh, that's what we do that's our business we find new interesting smelling molecules and we've got a lot of great ones um we've got a thai chili pepper uh ah. we've got a 
the white rind of a watermelon, a really, really beautiful kind of marine uh, fresh molecule, uh, an almond croissant kind of gourmand, um, got some exotic fruits. We've got uh, some white flowers as well. So we have, we have a bunch in the pipeline um, that uh, smell really great. And of course need, need further work in order to optimize them and to make sure that they pass all of the stringent and justifiably stringent uh, rules that uh, are set forth by the EPA and REACH and, and other regulatory right, right. agencies like that. Yeah. So you're just making me think about, you know, you're talking molecules. So I'm thinking of a cup of coffee, right? That has about, they say, between 800 and 1,000 molecules in it, chemical components. And we only smell about 27 of those. Only 27 yeah. of those molecules make up the smell of coffee. So Given that analogy, is your system, your device, what do we call it, your <laughs> your um, software, is it just capturing those 27 or is it going beyond things that we as humans can't smell? Because we, you know, we can only smell the 27 or we think the 27 are what make up the smell. But there's a lot under our threshold of smellability. Yeah, definitely. Smellable. Like what's the equivalent of infrared or ultraviolet for smell? Yeah. What are things that are just beyond our threshold of perception? Yeah. Um, I don't know if we have much to say about that since our system is trained on what expert uh, I see. experts think a, a given molecule smells. And it's, it. it's trained largely on the existing fragrance palette. And we're, okay. we're growing that, um, have grown that. So there's a couple pieces in your question and maybe we can break it apart. Mm -hmm. So there's this notion of can we predict the smell of mixtures of molecules? That's a really, really challenging question. Yes. And that's something that interests us, but I don't have <laughs> more to say at this point in time. And the other part is, uh, I guess I think of it as like compaction, which is great. You've got a thousand molecules in this percept or essential oil or concrete or absolute. What do I need? Like if I wanted to reconstitute it, what, what of that do I actually need in order to get the real thing? Right. And it might not be all the things that have an odor. Um, it might actually be more since there could be molecules that have other effects that are not purely olfactory. They could affect release time, blooming. Exactly. They could be fixatives. They could be surfactants. They could have a synergistic effect to you know smooth a part out that you know otherwise would be too sharp. So that's really hard to do. Um, <laughs> exactly. But... I think that's, you know, thinking really hard about that is where we all need to go, right? We, there's, a, there's a real lack of understanding out in the public, at least, um, in the literature, scientifically, with the, the real story of how all of the molecules and the things that build our memories, what roles they actually play. And I don't, frankly, I don't think we know in the level of detail that we deserve to know. Right. So you're working with the scientists in that sense, I mean, or the scientists will be looking to see what you do to see if that can help them just with their understanding of our sense of smell, I imagine. I mean, Absolutely. And we're, we're largely scientists as well. So, yeah, you know, so we're, it's fascinating. we're here, uh, yeah. you know, our, our primary cultural value is curiosity. Yeah. That's what really gets us up in the morning and drives us is like, huh, I wonder if, right, <laughs> and then, right insert the blank. And then, you know, we, we take those kinds of dreams and wonderings pretty seriously. Yeah. And then of course we make sure we're properly prioritizing and, and working well together as a team, but curiosity followed by collaboration and kindness and clarity of thought, clarity of speech, or, you know, that's how we yeah. do what we do. Yeah. 
I was, I, I think sometimes about, you know, our sense of smell is so elusive to us. Like you said, there's so little literature or it's starting a little bit. I think COVID had a little bit to do with that. Suddenly there's more interest in figuring out what our sense of smell is all about. But um, it, I feel like it's always laughing at us like, haha, you just thought you figured me out, but you haven't, you know, I'm going to come at you from this curve now and give you, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's kind of fun because it is so difficult. And I'm glad you're totally. up for the challenge because I feel like there's been so little literature because sight and sound have been a little bit more approachable if you will you know it's not so challenging yeah and the, I, I would qualify that a little bit which is sight was still somewhat challenging in 1920 and it was extremely challenging in 1820 okay this was before the widespread adoption of photography i mean daguerreotypes were were uh, I, I want to get my timeline right. I mean, co co the Kodak camera was like an 18, 1890, but we had photography in some form in the early 1800s. And Guth had his theory of color um, uh, around then as well, but we were still grasping at the fundamentals 200 years ago for vision, very much still, very much so also for, for hearing. So it's not that this is insurmountable. It's just that we have to be really honest with ourselves that we're, we're not modern. Right. We don't think of 1820 as very modern, right. but our understanding of smell is very much like what vision was in 1820. You're right. right? Yeah. And we're not wearing top hats and, you know, riding around yeah. big wheeled bicycles or anything like that. You know, it's, we're not in the Victorian era. We yeah. feel like we're modern, but we are not. Right. We're going to if you fast forward 500 years and you think about what we could know about olfaction. And I, I know I'm speculating here, but just it, there's no way we can't figure this stuff out. Like right. it's going to get figured out. Um, the issue is like, do we want to do it now or do we want it for somebody else to do it? Okay. And I kind of want to do it now, just being honest with you. <laughs> well, let's talk about what you are doing now. Let's get into what um, Osmo is able to do today that Certainly. that's really exciting. And I know a huge part of that is in the fragrance industry. So um, let's get into that a little bit. There's... I, from what I gathered from what's been out there in the press is you're kind of in the fragrance industry, you're kind of helping in two areas. You're helping with um, looking at how to replace natural materials more or less, and also to create new and exciting smells, which I love. I think that's so fascinating. We should, but let's start with the whole replacing natural materials or what the challenges are with natural materials, right? I mean, they're, they're being used less and less in the fragrance industry, I would argue because of sustainability. But at the same time, people are, are pining for natural, aren't they? That's the problem. Yeah. They still want they're, natural. they're fantastic, right? I mean, there's yeah. a story behind them, but they're also fantastic, right? So yeah. there's certain kinds of perceptual experiences that are really hard to construct without naturals. They, you know, if, if the synthetics in a perfume kind of create the skeleton of the experience, you can drape it and really clothed in really sumptuous robes like when that. you start yeah. to add a little bit of the natural, like natural sandalwood, natural ambergris. I mean, sometimes yeah. some of these things we can't possibly use at industrial scale because they're too rare or regulated or too expensive, but like really good citrus, really good essential oils from, you know, uh, this or that flower you might choose, yeah. or, um, you know, so, some, some of the woods that can create an incredible depth in a fragrance. It's, it's, it's hard to replicate those things. Um, I think that we all deserve to experience those things, right? Much in the same way that we don't really think about experiencing any color we possibly could want to see. 
<laughs> if we yeah. go back in time, okay. purple and red were ridiculously expensive colors. Really? Right? Okay. The, the processes by which you achieved that royal purple or crimson red were so expensive that if you, in some countries, in some periods of time, if you wore that color, it was illegal because it was a direct indicator of royalty, right? Mm -hmm. Tyrian purple is, is smashed up snails, basically, and they put through a very complicated mm -hmm. extraction process. But you, it's a lot of work to get even a drop of that stuff. And same for the crimson red. There was this little bug called cochineal that was found in Oaxaca. And um, it was being farmed in that area uh, by folks uh, who were there. And then the Spanish moved in effectively and said, hey, we really like this color. And then that's how it came to Europe. And before that, there were other colors that were, were um, had that quality, but uh, had that rough color, but not the quality and fastness of cochineal. But now we don't think about that. Right, because synthetic chemistry in the middle of the 1800s produced an enormous number of dyes, the aniline dyes, starting from, from coal tar as the, uh, as the starting place. And it covered every color. And now we've got 9,000 or so dyes and pigments that give us whatever we want. And there's just not this notion that like some colors are more rare than others. We just can have whatever we want. Right. Um, at, at a price which doesn't make us think right? It is pervasive and we're better for it. We're more enriched for it. Our lives are more beautiful for it. That has not happened in fragrance. Right. There are some smells that either you can't have at an economical price or in an ethical way or at all. And I think that that should change. I think it will change. It's hard. It's not yeah. easy. Uh, success is not guaranteed. But to me, that's, that's the that's the clarion call here. That's the thing that we need to, to heed and to answer is, look, there's just really beautiful smells out there and more people should smell them. Plain as that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think perfumers try to create it with the, the molecules they have available right now, right? They do their best to get as close as possible. Yep. And um, I know, I think it's public information now you worked with you were advised by Christoph Latamiel, who I worked mm -hmm. yeah, with. Yeah, we work um, with we work with him very closely. Yeah, he's yeah, lovely. and he he's he's a genius in a lot of areas. And I worked with him on a lot of um, scenting spaces. And mm. people want like the smell of fresh baked bread, or they want you know like these really obscure things that they think are so easy to create. And in fact, he's like, no, this is really challenging. <laughs> and, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it, you know the palate, the palate in total in the industry is like five or ten thousand ingredients, and the human mind, even a, a creative and trained mind, like a master perfumers, really is going to work with three or 400 of those ingredients. Um, we've heard that pretty consistently. Um, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. Yeah. And can you easily get to all smells using those? Yeah. Right? And without, I just don't know. I mean, how, how can we make the perfumers job easier? How can we increase their reach in olfactory space to more interesting, more exotic, more emotional places in, in their in their creative work? And the root of it is ingredients, right? Yeah. Um, so that that and that's the way that I think about it, at least. You just made me think of something that you know, if you're listening to this for the first time, you've never even thought about this. Is your your idea is not to replace the perfumer. Your idea is to be an extra hand to support the perfumer and give the perfumer a larger palette to work with, basically, right? You're not looking oh, to Oh, abso absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you cannot, there is no such thing as automating creativity, 
I've, I've been in the artificial intelligence world for some time and the name of the game isn't instead of a one person doing the work of one person, they can do the work of 10 yeah. or they can do something that you never would have thought possible. I mean, like imagine the change from the piano to the electric synthesizer yeah, to the yeah. recording booth, right? Music hasn't gotten less creative as we've gotten better tools. It's gotten better. It's gotten more, it's got, there's more variety. Um, there's a, there's a different ecosystem. Um, the true masters now have more tools at their disposal. Um, that I think that that's the story that we've seen before. And I, I think that that's likely what's, what will happen, um, whether or not we're involved with it or, or not. I think that um, whenever you bring a new tool to a craftsperson, um, they can either do their work faster or they can do work that they could never have dreamed of doing. Right, right. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got Osmo to do what it does. I mean, at least what you, you know, you kind of mentioned it in the, that one article, um, what you went ahead and did, like, how did you even get Osmo to start figuring out what molecules smell like? Um, oh yeah. So, so the, the process here was to train a piece of software that you, you could call it a neural network. Uh, if you're familiar with the term, and the goal of a neural network is to recognize patterns and then to learn those patterns and apply it to situations that's never been in before. And you hope if it's if it's learned patterns that are are stable, that are generalizable, that it uh, it gets it right in scenarios that it hasn't been in before. And so concretely in this space, we show it structures of molecules and we tell it what they really do smell like, according to a practicing uh, professional in the space. And then the hope is, that the neural network learns to recognize patterns in the structures of molecules such that it can reliably predict what the smell is. And then what we do is we say, all right, take a look at this molecule. Nobody's even smelled this thing before. What do you think? And then what we did in this experiment uh, with Joel Mainland and his lab at Monell, uh, some really talented people involved with that mm -hmm. study. And uh, we made these predictions on 400 such molecules that had never been smelled before. And we kept our predictions secret, but trained a, a panel in a double-blind fashion to reliably describe the smells of odors. And you can train people to be pretty decent at this in a, in a sitting, in an afternoon. Um, and they, of course, get better over time. And of course, the panel average when you group them is, is the best. And it turns out that our predictions on molecules that had never been seen before were as good and sometimes better than individuals on the panel. So that was that was the breakthrough really. And we made it extra hard for ourselves. So we made sure that the molecules that we made our predictions on not only didn't look like anything that had come before. So we okay. made sure that they did not look like the fragrance palette that, that we know. Good, good. And we yeah. made sure that the molecules didn't look like each other. So they were all very structurally different. And then we tr we at least predicted that they would smell very different from each other. And in fact, they did. And so this, this isn't the way that we use the system in our day-to-day -day work now because we, we make it easier for ourselves. We, we try to find molecules no matter what they look like as long as they smell good. Yeah. Um, but this was meant to be a very stringent test of the system. And we wrote up our, uh, our methods in a scientific paper, which is uh, in review right now. And it's on bioarchive, meaning you can read the full text of our paper today. 
And what the neural network learned that was really surprising was a map. It learned a map of odor, much like RGB is a, a map of sorts of color, right? So you can have three numbers that allow you to describe much of the colors that our eyes can see, almost all of them. And they give you rules for mixing them. They tell you how to build a camera. And what our neural network learned was a map of odor. And it's not three-dimensional because there's three channels of color information in our eyes, but there's over 300 <laughs> channels of odor information in our nose. So we should never expect the map to look like the kinds of maps we've built in science throughout time. Good. Right? A map that fits on a piece of paper or fits on a yeah. globe, it's not going to work. It's a right. high dimensional uh, thing that we're looking at. So this map was 250 dimensional, wow. give or take. And we don't know if that's the true number. Uh, it's a little bit tantalizing that's close to the number of olfactory receptors in our nose. But this is just what the engineering told us we needed it to be. If it was too, if it was much less than that, we weren't very accurate. If it was much more than that, we got no extra benefit. But it, it is a high dimensional map. It's certainly not three, certainly not 10. And um, this map of odor is the core engine of what has given us as a group, as a company, the confidence to go out and try to build something on top of it. And we think that this, this is the, not to say that we've solved this problem, but we think that this is a first step in the right direction. So where would you see yourself offering? Is this being going to be offered? Is it already being offered to the fragrance industry or where are you kind of taking yeah, it? Yeah, we, we have great ingredients already. Okay. And we're uh, interested in whether or not we can get these into consumers' hands as soon as possible. Okay. So the, the engine works to produce, the, we use the map of odor to explore previously unexplored regions of chemical space mm -hmm. and find fragrance molecules that smell great and satisfy all the other properties that a great ingredient needs. And we've done that and we're continuing to do that. And uh, that's our, that's our offering today. Okay. Excellent. And then you have kind of, I mean, that's kind of your offering today, but you also have this thought to the future, I love it, of trying to be a digital nose, which is, which fascinates me. Now, it sounds like it's so difficult. I mean, it's just the, the concept of it alone. <laughs> it's, it's insanely difficult. And uh, we're humbled by the prospects in front of us because nobody's done it yet. Yeah. Right. So this is very much like a zero to one yeah. kind of a challenge where we can't, we can't walk in the footsteps of anybody who's built uh, or replicated a sense of smell in a in an automated system before. Lots of people have tried, and I think people have made important contributions to to the history uh, of this. But nobody's nobody's succeeded, and that that's certainly daunting. But it's also really exciting, right? Yeah. That this is true terra incognita, and. Our approach to this is we think that the map of odor was one of the big missing pieces here, right? And as, as you read around the electronic nose literature or, you know, other efforts that have tried to do this, there's generally this notion of, you know, get, get chemical sensor data and then machine learning magic. <laughs> and then great, you've got a digital nose. And it turns out that like machine learning magic can't always rescue some of the 
hardware approaches that you use. And so this is going to be a complicated problem. That's not just going to be our software plugged into somebody else's system. This is going to be using our understanding of odor and our technical approaches to help guide the development of what could be, you know, quite a complicated process. Now we think that this is possible, but, but we're so far away from this. Our focus is entirely on the ingredients that we could build okay. because we think that we could be valuable to the fragrance industry today and to consumers today. And we think that uh, the fragrance ingredients are, are one type of ingredient that we could make. So the system that we built doesn't care that these molecules have a smell. It's just trying to predict what we ask it to predict. Yeah. But you could imagine there are other categories of molecules that could be built that consumers are asking for and that they need that could make their lives better. It could make their skin better. It could make their pets better. It could make their food better. I mean, there's yeah. lots of different places where we think that we can contribute. But again, it's very early days where we, we've been in existence since, since September. So uh, oh, that's it. Uh, I, hope, I hope you'll give us the uh, the benefit of the doubt and some patience while we uh, oh. work our way through the challenging problems we have in front of us. I forgot to mention you also, which is, I think, fascinating. It's not anything that I've ever worked on, but you also did some work on mosquito repellents. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Certainly. So I think this is in the in the spirit of our platform being able to build useful ingredients in other domains. So yeah. we took the same system. So you can imagine this being the same car, the same chassis, the same engine. Mm -hmm. And we replaced the fuel. So the fuel for our fragrance ingredient discovery system is a database of what molecules smell like. But we replaced it with a database of whether or not mosquitoes liked a given molecule whether they would be repelled by it. And we did this in collaboration with the Gates Foundation. Mm -hmm. And we were just intrigued whether or not this approach would work in a domain that shares some similarities, but can be quite different in many, many respects. It turns out that it works really well. And we found eight repellents that are more potent than DEET in a human trial, right? So not just, you know, in a reduced laboratory setting, but repelling mosquitoes from human heat, from human odor, uh, better than DEET did. And that's just the beginning uh, because these ingredients that we have right now, again, are our first draft. These ingredients have to be safe. They have to be cheap. They have to uh, not smell as bad as a DEET, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have something exactly. to add there. Um, DEET also eats clothes and plastic. Like it's not a great molecule. No, and no. we think that we can improve it and make it better using the same approach that we make for fragrances. So the, the approach that we have is one of and again, it goes back to earlier in our conversation of cognitive automation of an era where, yes, machines can do physical work, but computers can also do cognitive work. And then we think that this approach can be used in multiple different verticals to bring us the ingredients that we need in order to en enrich and uh, improve and lengthen our lives. Yeah. And uh, that's the first two proof points there is fragrance and, and insect repellents. And again, I just want to be frank and clear about our level of progress and our, our the youth of our company, which is we have good ingredients, but we've not launched anything on the market. And so we're we're a, a baby that's, you know, crawling oh, yeah. then walking then running. Sure. But um the the promise here, you know, the reason why I do this every day is because I think the promise is immense to dramatically accelerate the the kind of development that we need for for better ingredients in our lives. It just made me think, is there anything that can be done in the future for people that have multi-chemical sensitivities, you know, that people that have a real difficulty with certain 
fragrant raw materials, right? Other ways you can help people there. I mean, that's a whole nother area, but. It's possible. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't quite know how, um, but I think that if we put our scientists hat on and tried to understand exactly why people were yes. intolerant of certain ingredients and, you know, I have family members that, that definitely have this issue. Um, if we could understand it at its root, then perhaps we could develop a solution around it. Um, and not everybody wants things fragranced, right? And so, really? you know, the extent that we also can mask malodor or we can provide, uh, um, you know, the right effects in a consumer product, um, either with really subtle odor, potentially with, with no odor, um, is uh, something that we also think about. It's just mind-blowing. It makes my head spin thinking about all the things you can do. So you really have to stay focused. Um, I just want to end with, I guess, a more of a philosophical thought and mm. ask you, you know, some people who might have listened to this today might be saying, why do this at all? You know, why um, isn't it a bit too much to go in this direction? Why not? You know, we've got what we've got. Isn't it good enough? AI kind of scares me. I want to kind of put people's mind at ease that AI, as you've already kind of mentioned, but I want to just reiterate, it's there to support us, not to replace us. And I just thought we could end with that to, to say, hundred <laughs> percent. We, we all use tools, right? You're using yeah. a microphone. We all use tools to get our job done. And when there's a new tool available that could help, and maybe it's early, we don't quite know how to use it yet. We're all learning. It can be a little chaotic. It can be a little unnerving. But these are just tools. At, at the core, they're tools. They help us do our jobs better. And we've chosen to do our job in this industry in the service of building really beautiful sensory experiences for people. But at the root, I completely agree with you. Artificial intelligence and software and automation you know, of many kinds is a way to do the job. It doesn't define the job. It doesn't um, change or diminish creativity, but when used well, it can amplify creativity. I love that. Well, thank you for joining me here today and for sharing a little bit about, you know, your your baby companies, you say, Osmo. And uh, I wish you all the luck in the world. I can't wait to see what you guys come up with and how it moves the, the scented world. So thank you so much for being here. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, I'd love to share what we're doing at Osmo. And we're young, but uh, we are in it for the long haul. So I'm sure we'll have the chance to speak again and you'll hear about us again as well. Thank you for joining me on An Aromatic Life. If you're interested in learning more about your sense of smell from all different perspectives, subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends too. And it would be really helpful if you could rate the podcast so it helps others find it too. I also invite you to check out my website, falkaromatherapy.com, where you'll find information about workshops, courses, and other programs I offer. And make sure you grab my free audio training, How to Smell to Be Well, which you can download from my website. Until next time, remember to smell everything and have a wonderful day.